All right, good morning. Um, first, I want to thank Jonathan and the elders and um, for the opportunity to speak this morning. Jonathan called me or texted me a few weeks ago while I was in Costa Rica. I just got back on Friday night. Everything in Costa Rica is going great. I know we have a trip planned coming up. Um, if you want more information about that, talk to Rob. But um, Costa Rica is firing on all cylinders, and I hope you're able to make it down with the team coming later this year. Um, but Jonathan reminded me that I was preaching, and I was like, ooh, that's awesome. I'd love the opportunity to speak to my church family here at the crossing. And then I read the text that he had assigned me, and um, all of a sudden I was a little less excited um, just because this is probably one of the most challenging texts I've ever preached on. So what I did was I immediately went to men that I love and respect and watched sermons and listened to what they had to say about it. And I read commentary. And R.C. Sproul, I don't know if you're familiar with him, but I have a great deal of respect for his theological prowess. Anyway, him and John Piper both call this text like the most terrifying or the scariest passage in Scripture. And I was like, oh, my goodness, thanks. Um, but here's what, yeah, thank you. Um, but... What I do know this morning as we dig into something that's going to be really hard and maybe complicated is God did not give us his word to cause confusion. That's for sure. He did not give it to create a spirit of fear or to dishearten us or to undermine our assurance. But it is there for counsel and correction and conviction. So as I try to navigate this passage today, as we do it together, um, one... I'm just going to pray that God gives us wisdom and grace to hear what he would want us to hear. If you have any follow-up questions or you don't like anything that I said in my sermon, Jonathan's available 24-7. <laughs> Call him and take it up with him. But um, no, let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for your scripture. I thank you for your word. And even the crazy things that you say, we know that we can learn from them. Father, as we open your word tonight and read one of those passages, I just pray that you would um, speak to us, speak to our hearts, soften our hearts so that we would hear your word clearly. Father, I pray that we would leave encouraged, that we would leave convicted, that we would um, be thinking and being mindful of the things that we look at and study today. And we just um, commit this time to you. And we give you all the glory and all the credit for everything you're doing. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, amen. So let's, um, let's jump right in. This is in the middle of the sermon or towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And it says, this is in Matthew 7, 21. If you want to follow along in your Bible, you can. If not, I'm going to have this verse up on the screen. It says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Wow. That's kind of crazy. And if you're, a, if you're a believer today, that could even shake some of your theology and scare you a little bit, right? 
I mean, what's more heartbreaking or more heart-wrenching than someone who lives their life and they think they're okay in their salvation, and they've lived their life and they've even done works that would show it, and on judgment day, they go before their maker and he says, depart from me, I never knew you. That should not terrify but that should cause us all to have sober consideration of what Jesus is trying to teach here. Because that's a pretty scary verse. The idea that you could live your life doing these great mighty works of God, that's what it says, and still hear those words, depart from me, I never knew you. So what I want to do is I want to break it down a little bit. And I want to break it into... Um, Three things, three fallacies that I think exist in the church when Jesus was preaching this sermon, but also in the church today. Now, we know that who was at, this was in the middle of the Sermon on the Mountain, who was listening? His apostles or his disciples, other people that have started following him, but there were certainly Pharisees, Sadducees, and all of them present as well, and even false prophets. And Jesus has already taught a lot about the Pharisees. And he says, the Pharisees say this, but I tell you this. The Pharisees do it this way, but I tell you do it this way. See, who were the Pharisees? They were the religious elite of the day. They thought they were the ones doing everything right. They were hyper-pious. They were super self-righteous. But they were doing everything correctly. They thought they walked the walk, they talked the talk, and they could even be in this category where it says, I did great things in your name. But Jesus obviously is talking to the Pharisees. He's talking about false prophets, but who else he's talking about is you and me. Because I think in our flesh, in our heart, we have a propensity to want to be more pharisaical about our Christ following. And that should warn us or scare us or bring us to think through what is Jesus talking about here because it can be very, very hard to reconcile. So um, what I'm going to do is I am going to point out three things that I think we can take out of this passage and understand. One, it can't be mere intellectualism or doctrine. It can't. And I think that's one of the fears. I mean, yes, we should be renewing our mind and we should be trying to have some sort of systematic theology and constantly be developing who we believe God is in our hearts and in our minds and in our lives. But sometimes we think, we mistakenly think like, man, if I study enough, if I listen to enough sermons, if I go to enough podcasts, if I can learn enough about God, I'll be okay. And sometimes that 18 inches from your brain to your heart is the longest distance. And I think of some people that Jesus ran into. One was a, 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 a young wealthy man, and it says he was kind of an expert of the law. And he comes up to Jesus, and you all know the story. He says, hey, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And what does Jesus say? Well, what does the law say? Don't kill, da, 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 da. And the guy has the audacity 
to tell Jesus, well, I've done that perfect since I was a youth. So Jesus all of a sudden knows. Well, this guy knows the law intellectually, but his heart, he doesn't understand it. He's learned the letter of the law, but somehow he's missed the, the bigger picture, the point of the law, which causes you to be loving towards God and loving towards other. So Jesus exposes that by telling him what? Well, go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor and then follow me. And he wasn't willing to do that. It says he left downtrodden because he wasn't willing to make that sacrifice. See, that, that person, he knew the law. Matter of fact, he said he had been following it perfectly since he was a child. But somehow knowing it wasn't enough. And I think sometimes for us, that's a warning. If you would rather read a book about a teaching of the Bible than read the Bible, that might be a warning sign. If you like to gather more and more Hebrew and Greek and all the really deep, deep teachings and doctrine of theology, but you have trouble just loving your neighbors or being relational with people, that should be a warning. I think that's a, 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 one of the pharisaical things that exists still in the church today, that we can put theology and intellectualism on such a high precipice that we think, okay, well, I know enough about God. I must be okay. And that's a fallacy. See, it's like this. this is, I could read all of John Piper's books, which I think I've written most of them. I could listen to his podcast. I could listen to all his sermons. I could read all his commentary. Desiring God's an amazing resource, and it's an awesome website. I could do all of that stuff. I could even go out and hire a private investigator and say, hey, I want all the dirt on John Piper. I want to know all his personal information. And they might dig up a lot. And I could take all that information with everything I studied and everything he ever said, and I could feel like we have a relationship. But here's the problem. If I showed up to John, I got his address, and I showed up to his house, I knock on his door. I'm like, hey, John, you want to go get a beer? What's he going to be? He's going to say, who are you? I don't know you at all. You know everything about me, but I don't know you. No, I don't want to go anywhere with you because you're a weirdo that just showed up at my house. <laughs> I mean, that's what it would be like. But I could start to think, well, I really have a pretty good relationship with John. I understand him. I agree with him. I really, really understand what he's trying to say. But the problem there is that John doesn't know me. And that's what the text says. And the text says, what does it say? It says, I never knew you. So it's not so much just knowing God. It's making sure that you are known by God. And that's a huge difference. See, religion, self-righteousness, pharisaical living, the Pharisees thought for sure they were good. They knew God because they had studied the law their entire life. They have lived it in rigorous piety for their entire life. They thought, well, surely we know God and we know how to live for him. And then Jesus, God, shows up in their lives and what? They don't even recognize him. They want to combat him. No, this can't be what God had planned. There's no way that the, the son of a carpenter from Nazarene could be 
the one we're waiting for. There's no way this guy is the savior of the world that was promised. So they knew a lot about God, but they really didn't because they didn't even recognize him when he came and started giving these teachings and inviting them into his life and saying, follow me. So that's one, intellectualism. It's not one I really struggle with. I'm not an intellect, but here's one that I do. It can't be mere emotionalism, okay? The feeling. R.C. Sproul has a 38-minute sermon on two words, Lord, Lord. I'm not going to even try to break all that down for you, but I learned a lot from it. At the beginning of the text, it said, Jesus says, not all who say, Lord, Lord. Now, I didn't realize this. I knew that repeating a word twice in Hebrew meant like, hey, pay attention. Like Jesus often said, verily, verily, or truly, truly, or when you repeat yourself, they didn't have punctuation like we did, so it was like an emphasis. But in this circumstance, this particular um, form of language was only used about 12 times in the Bible. In the Old Testament, here's some of the examples. Um, if you remember the story of Abraham, God had called Abraham to move everything, and then finally the promise of the son Isaac, and what? He takes Isaac up on the mountain, and he's getting ready to sacrifice Isaac, and he brings up the knife, and God speaks. Abraham, Abraham, do not hurt your son or do not harm that child. And he, he gives another sacrifice, but he was testing Abraham. And in those moments, he calls him and says, Abraham, Abraham. So it's a very intimate relationship at a time where God's about to ask him to do something. And God's going to move in a big way. Another one was when he called Jacob into Egypt. Jacob did not want to go to Egypt. He wanted to stay in the land that was promised to them. But the famine and all that. And God appears to Jacob and says, Jacob, Jacob, it's okay. Go into Egypt. The other using was Moses. Moses is in the desert. He sees the burning bush. God's talking back and forth to Moses. Moses is being stubborn, doesn't want to follow God's will. And finally, he says, Moses, Moses, this is what I got for you. You are going to return to Egypt, and I'm going to use you to set my people free. You will do this. And then it's also in the calling of Samuel with Eli, Samuel, Samuel. Yes, Lord, it's me. I'm listening. Um, Elisha, and so on. In the New Testament, Jesus uses it only four times. Now, he uses repetitive language, but in this actual text, he only uses it four times. And the first one that he uses it is when he corrects Martha. Remember when Martha and Mary are sitting there? Or Mary's sitting there and Martha's working, trying to get the whole house ready for everybody? He looks at her and he says, Martha, Martha. Mary has chosen to, he rebukes her, but he does it, he uses this language of great intimacy and love. Um, another time that he uses it is when he's talking to Simon Peter, and he's telling him, you're going to deny me. And Simon's arguing with him, no, I'll never do that, da, 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 da. And he tells him, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked me or asked permission to sift you like wheat, but it's Okay. Because you're going to stand strong and I'm going to be with you. And even though you're going to deny me, it's going to be okay. But he talks to him in this very intimate. 
And then the last one besides this is when he was on the cross. And he cries out, Father, Father. So you get the idea when Jesus says this, why that's important, is because these people in in this story that Jesus is telling would be using a language that was incredibly intimate. It wasn't like haphazard, Lord, Lord. This was a very, very intimate, powerful language that would have been used when Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. These people think they have a relationship with him by this language. That's what he's suggesting. And by the way, it's not just a few. It says many. That makes it even more um, powerful. But so why is that? I mean, that's what's important. And what I think about when it comes to emotionalism is that's what we do. And I think there's a problem in the way we approach evangelism in the Church of America or in the modern church today in general. We generally make it experiential and we make it centered on us rather than centered on him. Emotional people, you might go from one big event, one mountaintop experience to the next. And that's when you feel most connected. Or maybe... You're a church hopper because every church you go to, it just doesn't fill you up because you need that emotional connection or experience. You know, when I was, um, when we moved to Costa Rica, Molly and I started attending this church and um, I thought, man, I've been doing it wrong this whole time because there was using the gifts and I'm not discounting the gifts, but there was a lot of speaking in tongues and slaying in the spirit and just crazy stuff happening. I'm like, wow, these people really have a different level of faith than I do. I mean, they're casting out demons. They're running around like crazy people, worshiping God, super excited. I was like, what's wrong with me? Man, the PCA did not equip or prepare me for this. Um, So, but what I noticed was they would have this great experience of being slayed in the spirit or speaking in tongues And then they went out and they were still living their lives as if it never happened. They were still dealing drugs or stealing or fornicating or whatever it was. And I was like, somehow it just doesn't feel genuine. Sometimes you can't force a relationship with Christ. Another story that came to mind as I was preparing this was, it's kind of a confession and I hope you don't judge me for this, but I was raised um, Mormon LDS. When I was about 14, I remember going to a church over in Orange Park. I won't tell you the name. You might know it. But um, a friend of mine's mother had passed away, and I went to the service, the funeral, with them. And it was a nice service, and they honored her, and everything was great. But then the pastor got up and started to give, like, an altar call sermon. I had never heard one of these. We We didn't really do that. And... He was like, we are not leaving today until a soul is saved, until someone is one to Christ. And it got awkward, like 15 minutes of music and 15 (laughs) minutes. And I'm looking around like, wow, this is weird. Is somebody actually going to, and nobody got up. And I don't know if everybody was saved or they just wasn't the spirit or what, so... I was getting bored, 
as you know, I have raging ADHD. So I was like, I'll go. <laughs> and I, hallelujah, praise Jesus, I walked that aisle. I said the sinner's prayer. I was given assurances that all of my grief would turn to joy. And I was going to be right with God. And I left, and that lasted about 15 minutes. And I thought, man, I'm glad that was over. <laughs> it was never for what it was supposed to be. It was never about me wanting. And I appreciate the pastor's, um, I don't know, fervor for wanting to win souls. But you can't do it that way. You can't manipulate people into a relationship with Christ. It doesn't work. It's not about just emotionalism. It's not about us feeling like, oh, like these mushy feelings, like, oh, well, now I know God is with me because I had this happen. These people had that happen. It says that they prophesied in his name. He, they cast out demons. And yet, they heard the same thing. Depart from me. I never knew you. So it can't be intellectualism. It can't be emotionalism. And it, the last thing I want to hit on today is activism. It can't be about our activism in the church. It just can't. And what that might look like is you might be the guy that says, what do you mean? I went to church every Sunday. I went to youth group. I volunteered in the nursery. I even helped the church move on Saturday morning when I didn't want to do that. I mean, come on. Isn't that enough? Doesn't that mean I have a relationship with you? Can't I do enough? And see, the problem with that is another teacher of the law that came to Jesus. And he comes up to Jesus and he says, hey, what do I have to do to have eternal life, basically? Or actually, this guy asks a different question. He says, hey, what's the greatest commandment? The Pharisees have been trying to trip him up. Jesus says, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And what does it say he tries to do? He says, so he tries to justify himself by asking the question, well, who's my neighbor? And then Jesus goes into the parable of the um, Good Samaritan. But see, the problem, the reason I bring that up is I think that's what we do is we try to justify so that when on judgment day, if Jesus says, oh, I don't know you, we can say, but I did this, 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 this. How can you not let me in? Like we can somehow work our way into a relationship with God. Like somehow we can do enough good things. Or if we just do more good things than bad things, we'll be okay. And that's not true. I, I get a sense that that's what the Pharisees were trying to do. That at the judgment throne, they're standing there with arrogance of saying, man, I've lived my whole life doing all of this stuff. I certainly deserve to go to heaven. But what's the truth? What's the only thing on judgment day that is sufficient to guarantee our salvation? A relationship with God. So it's not intellectualism of knowing God. It's not about emotionalism of feeling God. It's not enough just to be active in your duty, your Christian duty. At the end of the day, it comes down to one thing. 
relationship. Now, like I said at the beginning, I don't want anybody here feeling anything super negative. I'm not trying to do that. If God is wrestling with you or you're thinking through this, good. But I would challenge you today in how do you know that you have a relationship with God? How do you know that he knows you? Because it can't just be, I've read a lot of books about him. It can't be, well, this one time at summer camp or that great mission trip I went on or whatever. And it certainly can't be, well, I'm a pretty good person and I do all this stuff for him. It comes down to a relationship. So let me ask you this, and this is what I've been reconciling and wrestling with in my own walk. How do you know you have a relationship with a good friend or a spouse or maybe your parent, your father? Because I think that's what it should look like and feel like for us. When you talk to your father, let's just use your earthly father, and if you don't have a good relationship with that, think of somebody that's kind of in that position. When you talk to your earthly father, are you trying to impress him with all your intellectual knowledge about who he is? I mean, if Seth came to me and was like, oh, father, you are so awesome, and I know that you have two cars, and if you could just give me the key to one car, I know that your mercy, but I'd be like, what is wrong with you? But he came to me and he just says, hey, can I use the car? Well, of course you can. Here, take the car. Or maybe, no, not tonight. So think about how you interact with God and who he looks like in your life. How you talk to him. More importantly, how do you listen to him? Sometimes your prayer life will be best spent by shutting your mouth. Sometimes we want to tell God everything. He's like, yeah, that's great, but I just wanted to say this. I mean, you've been around people like that, where you just want to say, hey, would you just shut up and listen for a second? <laughs> Not, I, mean, I don't think God's that impatient, but I think that sometimes he's like, Spencer, just be quiet and listen and watch me. The other thing I think I'd point out is that he says, those who do the will of my father. Sometimes we can do great things for God, and it's our great ideas, but it really wasn't God's plan or God's will. And sometimes he'll even allow it because he works all things together for good. But he can be like, yeah, that was my will, but that really wasn't what I was wanting you to do. You did that because you wanted to look really righteous in front of all your friends. Or you did that because you wanted to somehow think that whatever. And I think that's a good call on us as our motives. I love my father, my earthly father. And I have a lot of reasons probably not to. But I do. But it's not because I'm trying to win his love or make him think that we have something we don't, it's just because I love him. Because he's my father, and it's kind of unexplainable. 
And that's, I think, what it has to be with God in our lives through the Holy Spirit and through Christ is that we have this relationship and we can't explain to people, well, why does God love you? I don't know. I really don't because I tend to be a very sinful, stubborn, stiff-necked person. A lot of people don't love me. A lot of people don't even like to be around me. But God of the universe loves me and he speaks to me. And he tells me, hey, I love you so much. I want to be in a relationship with you. And I'm going to do things that you could never have imagined through you if you will just submit and be in relationship with me. So I just challenge you today. Is your faith, are you more on the side of intellectualism? Do you lean more to emotionalism? Or do you somehow have this great burden of activism? You know, if you're doing things for the church because you love the church and you want to see her grow and you love the people in your church and you want to serve them, that's great. Those are good motives. If you're doing things in the church because you somehow think you're going to impress God, stop doing them. Sorry, Jonathan. Stop <laughs> doing them <laughs> because they're, it's worthless and you're actually just taking the the joy from somebody else that might be doing it for the right motives. The God who spoke the universe into being. Think about that. He said, let there be light. And he just spoke it and there was. You really think you're going to help him by volunteering in the nursery for an hour. Like he's going to be like, oh, well, that's awesome. Now, now you can go to heaven. You know, I don't really know you, but now you're good. No, it can't be. But you know what? If you're like, God, I love you, and I love your church, and I love the people that you put me in community with, and I see them growing, and you're helping me grow, and I would love to sit in there and serve those little babies and pray over them and watch them for you, knowing that they're going to grow to be godly men. And Do you see the difference there? It's like, yeah, that's why I'm doing it, because God is awesome, and I have a relationship with him. So anyway, I'm going to close in prayer, but I do want you to think about this passage. Even if it's nothing I said, go home and think about this passage. What does it mean? And may none of us hear those words.